You're very welcome back to The Open Door on Midlands 103 with Anne-Marie Kelly. Now, if you have a story to tell and you'd love me to highlight it, why not get in contact with me? My email is the best place to get me, amkelly at midlands103.com. Now, we spoke a few years ago to John Dunn. Uh, He has been writing a trilogy of books about the local history, the ordinary things that happen to people, the ordinary people in Portlaoise. It's always been his focus and the brand new one is going to be launched next Tuesday, the 9th of November in the Dunamay's Art Centre. And if you'd like to book your tickets, you can go on to their website, dunamay's.ie. Now, in this collection, he talks about the Maryborough miracle, concerns a lady back in the 1820s who was cured But on the way, you'll hear stories about the CIE mystery tours. Who remembers those mystery tours that came to Portlaoise where people got off to actually swim with their towels? Uh, We have the story of the swimming pool, decades and decades of people campaigning for a pool in Portlaoise, an international court case involving a cannon and also the story of the Maryborough Well and tales of pure filth happening in the Town Commission meeting. That's all to come with John Dunn as we walk and talk through the town of Portlaoise and talk about the history under our feet. But let's focus on that theme of water yeah. uh, in, and swimming because I didn't realise how difficult it was to get a pool, a swimming pool, in Portlaoise, the main town of Leash. Yep. Well, it's appropriate that we should be talking here on the banks of the Triogue, on the overgrown banks of the Triogue. Yeah. Over the years, anyway, from it, as way back as far as about 1910, there were meetings in the town that the town did need a bathing pool. For some reason, it became a swimming pool later, yeah. which was always called a bathing place or a bathing pool. Mm. Every 10 years or so, they had a meeting and a great <laughs> promise, we're going to have a pool. At one stage, they um, down the new road, or the well road, the Triogue River comes in along there, and that's diverted then into a mill race for Ardlam's Mill. Yeah. And someone blocked off. They decided to, to block off the river completely. And whatever happened, all the trout died. And, and they all floated up the river when the sluice gates were opened again. And they floated up the river, and there were lads. And I know people who, whose parents and grandparents vouched for this. People went home with fish suppers, with fish dinners. But uh, as recently as the 60s, they were fumigating Ardlem's Mill there at one stage. They'd have to do it every now and then Mm. with rats and all the rest of it. And whatever happened, it got into the water. And I remember as a child, fairly substantial looking trout floating belly up in the river. Big white bellies on them, I remember. Was there a story that you mentioned that some people would get off the train to even? Is that true? That's a gas story. In the 60s in particular, there was a kind of a, I suppose you'd call it a tradition. CIE used to run what they call mystery tours. Right. Basically, you get on the train in Kingsbridge, as it was then, Houston, and the theory was you could end up anywhere. But they usually went to maybe there were three destinations, and Port Leash was always one of them. Right. And the story goes: a lot of the people that came to Port Leash, they knew it was a mystery train, so yeah. called, but they knew exactly where they were going. Of course, yeah. And um, most of the people actually used to get a bus at the station and go out to the steam rally in Stradbally. But somehow the word got out that you could swim in the Triogue. 
There's a part of the trio called the Sandy Bottoms that a lot of Port Leash people will remember the Sandy Bottoms. Basically, it was just the river widened out a bit and the you bottom of the river was sandy. Okay, and yeah. that was it. And, and the story goes, and I can't vouch for this, but two people did, that a whole rake of people got off the train in Portlaoise with togs and towels looking for the sandy bottoms. <laughs> now, the sandy bottoms, you wouldn't fit more than eight or ten people in it. Wait, are you talking about 50s, 60s here? Oh, you're talking the 1960s. Oh, yeah, God, I remember it well. Absolutely, I, I can remember um, oh, up to the late 60s, maybe up to 1970 even. Really? Yeah. So where about some Port Leash was the Sandy Bottoms? Again? The Sandy Bottoms were... Uh, go down downtown, down to Humes's, turn right at Humes's, out towards Timahoe. Yeah. And, and about, oh, not much more than a mile out there, the river runs along the side of the road. Yeah. And that's the Triogue, obviously. Mm-hmm. And it widens out at one spot there. It will be near, uh, what do we see? You're going down the well road and there's a couple of roundabouts. And there's a roundabout before you turn up into... Um, What's that place called? The home base and all that. Oh, yeah, yeah, and yeah. And just beyond, the river the is going the, the whole time. And uh, right. just in there, the river just widens out. Okay. Now, further on out, there's um, what was known as the Well of Marlborough, which is actually known as the Blessed Well of Marlborough. This is out that road again. Keep going out the road towards Timahoe. Yeah. You'll come on your left. You'll come to um, the Cattle Mart. I know what you're talking about, because the old stud used to be there as well. That, that's exactly it's, it. It's the road to the new school. That's exactly yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. And just before you come to the, the, the cattle mart, yeah. there's an entrance. I think the county council have some kind of a depot, because I see council vans in it. And you could look in there and you'll see nothing. The Port Leash Men's Shed is near there too, it, Absolutely, it, it yeah, is. Yeah. Absolutely. But in there, in that opening, say, off the road, mm. there's a... There's a well there, all going way back. It's mentioned in, it's mentioned, it's been documented from the early 19th century, the Blessed Well of Marlborough. And apparently it was, um, it used to have patrons. And a patron, it's a corruption of the word patron. On a saint's patron day, people would meet out there and they'd, they drank the water from the well. It was supposed to have miraculous cures. Right. Is it dried up now? So it's, yeah. it's well, no, that's an, a good question. I'll come to that in a minute. That's a right, good right. question. Okay. It's because uh, I'm thinking, well, I, well. <laughs> no, if you're looking for miracles, <laughs> the only miracle I know now is in a book. So. <laughs> okay. We'll get to that in a second. <laughs> no. Um, <laughs> and there's another well, just incidentally, off over the far side of the Dublin Road, between the Dublin Road, near the prison, between the Dublin Road and the Burris Road, Father O'Connor's well. Oh. He was a parish priest in town here. Okay. And again, that's supposed to have curative powers as well. Right. But anyway, getting back to the, the Blessed Well down the, the New Road, or the Well Road. Yeah. About 19... I've jumped forward now. To, I'm talking about 1917, maybe 1920. Right. The Sanitary Authority decided to actually use that well as a reservoir to enhance the town's water supply. So uh, pumps and all, made by Aldrights of the famous yeah. aeronautical family, they constructed pumps and and for many years, on, until it was enhanced elsewhere, until the water supply was enhanced elsewhere, that contributed to the water supply of the town. When it stopped being used for that, it was suggested, why not make a swimming pool there? Was that officially then the first pool? 
It, it was and it wasn't. Right. Uh, the call went out for the council, listen, do something here. We have no pool. We've been campaigning for years for a pool and there's no sign of our pool. So what they did was they had the spring. The water was there already. Mm-hmm. So they built a kind of a concrete embankment around it. Basically, the, the pool was, was filled from the, from the spring. Right. And the remain, in my time, the remains of the old all right pump, the pump house was still there in the corner. Kind of young local daredevil, daredevils would get up on the pump house and dive in. Right. Now, you were taking your life in your hands diving yes, into this thing. I say so. It was freezing. It was spring water, remember, straight <laughs> up from the spring. It was absolutely freezing. <laughs> and it was known locally as the Well of Marlborough, which is the Specifically, it was exactly a good description, the Well, yeah. the well of Marlborough. Mm. And for years, and up to my time, that was the unofficial swimming pool in the town. Okay. This kept going on to the 60s, and there was a lot of talk again in the 1960s of we need a pool, we need a Proper pool. Proper pool, yeah, yeah. And eventually, the committees were formed. They had every kind of a fundraiser you could think of. No, they had raffles. They had dances that I think called Miss Rosebud Leash. No, I'm trying to get my head around Miss Rosebud Leash. I, I think it might have been some kind of a very sexist reference to petite young ladies. Uh, look at them, they're little rosebuds. So they have to wear bikinis? Well, what kind of a question is that to be asking a 71-year-old well, man now? I'm just now? thinking, like, if it's for the pool... And there it was, you know, a woman competition. Of course, they're going to be. And we'll draw a veil over. We'll draw that, a veil really. over. I, that. Um, I love that. Yeah. And uh, so anyway, <laughs> after the Miss Rosebud, but 1971 eventually came. Right. And we had a pool. Okay. So this is where is this where the leisure centre is now? Absolutely. And we and right. It lasted there till about 2006, I think. Right. So that, then it was rebuilt, wasn't it? In 2006. It, it, it was demolished completely. Yeah. And what we have now is rebuilt. That's a very long-winded history now, you know. (laughs) (laughs) No, but I love that, John. I think it's important to think, I suppose, uh, with the kind of work that you do, people say, why is he picking up all these old bits and tidbits from papers? But it's it's, it's a folklore history that you follow through. And and I think, um, for me, it's intriguing because it's, as we always speak about, the history is under our feet. You don't have to go and look abroad to see well, all the that, stuff. Well, that's, that's interesting because if there's any kind of... I mentioned earlier about kind of my impetus for writing at all is mm. learning about things myself. But it's also... I have very little interest, I can really say no interest, in political history, for example. Mm. You know, and uh, I'll be shot for saying this, but a lot of the major kind of political events in Ireland... Other people are interested in them and they write about them and more luck to them. I'm just not interested. I'm interested in ordinary people. You man that had a shop, say, on the main street. The woman who claimed she saw a ghost. This kind of stuff, you know. Well, you see, this is why I picked... The, the, book, the book cover is beautiful. It has that kind of mysterious image of women in the fog. And the miracle, the, Mer- the Maryborough miracle. Are you going to tell me today what the miracle is? Or are you going to leave it for people to read it? It's ironically... It's the shortest story in the book. Right. It's only a couple of pages long. I had, I had come across this in an academic journal, of all things. But back in 1820, almost 200 years ago, 1823, there was a young woman who, she had problems, she had health issues. Right. Very, very serious social and health issues. And um, she was cured. Now, in itself, you know, 
that's interesting. But what was really intriguing was how the cure was effected. How this young lady, whose name is Lawler, incidentally, right. how she was actually cured of a profound disability. I, I just couldn't believe that how in the name of God could this work? No, I, I spend ages, absolutely ages, just online. And I'm looking up all these old yokes and the, the stranger and the more interesting. But I can think of worse things to do, John. Well, uh, I suppose that she tell me I do do worse. I spend ages beating a bazooki as well, like, you know. But <laughs> yeah. No, um, so anyway, it, it was how this miracle was performed really intrigued me. And I'm still amazed by it. And I'll say no more because I, I've, I've copies of a book to sell. <laughs> so I need to sell a book. <laughs> right, so if you want to find out about this woman from the 1820s who had Ninth, this... Sorry, the 19th, early 19th. Oh, sorry, so it's, it's 200 years ago yeah. almost. Uh, she's from, so it's 1823, yeah. and she had this incurable disease or disability, yeah. and she got cured. Yeah. And to find out the answer, you have to buy the book. That's, in a nutshell, I couldn't have said it better myself. Talk about leaving you high and dry. Well, we'll continue our conversation with John Dunn. It's a fascinating conversation. We will continue talking about a, a hard porn town commission meeting in which a councillor McCormick wanted to sue RTE for showing porn. That's coming up also. How thoughts from abroad. He asked people to name one item that reminds them most of their hometown. And you won't believe what they mentioned there could be mention of the Blue Bridge. Who remembers the Blue Bridge in Port Leash? More of those tales of the ordinary coming up on the way with John Dunn after these. Mr McCormick said, I'm talking about men and women in the nude. <laughs> Copulating, he says. Open up the door. The Open Door with Anne-Marie Kelly on Midlands 103. Hands up who loves reading about local history, particularly about ordinary people, the ordinary going-ons of people in your local community. Well, John Don from Portleash has made three books about it. It's Local History at Your Fingertips and his brand new book is called The Maryborough Miracle. Portleash used to be called Maryborough and it's the final part of the trilogy. It's released next Tuesday. Dunamay's Art Centre is where he's launching the book and we start back at a town commission meeting in the 1980s and Councillor McCormick is not happy with RTE. There's one story as well. I mean, there's always, I suppose, in around the Late Late Show, uh, there has been created a world of, I suppose, we had Oliver J, the history of Oliver J. I think Jay. I know where you're going with this. And, uh, a certain person called McCormick, uh, who was talking about pornography. Basically what happened there was uh, the town commission again, the good old town commission. Unfortunately, they were disbanded a couple of years ago. Oh no, more humour. Yep, and um, <laughs> it came up at a meeting that a, a certain commissioner, McCormick, said he was disgusted that I'm thinking of writing to the director general of RTE some of the disgraceful stuff that was on television recently. So I wonder, Commissioner, yeah. well, what are you talking about, he said. What year are we talking, 60s, 70s? No, this is the 80s. It's the 80s, yeah. The 80s. Mr McCormick said, I'm talking about men and women in the nude. <laughs> Copulating, he says. <laughs> that word, it's just, oh. Okay, so, and, um, so he brought this up at the Town Commission. He brought it up at a Town Commission meeting. <laughs> and... Uh, 
The other well, lads, of course. Row, is it? Well, that's well, interesting because the, the response to this was, which I find incredible, I think it was Commissioner Jacob. His response was, Are you referring to the kiss in Glen Row? <laughs> no, he said, I'm talking about hard porn. So anyway, this went on and on and on, and, and the upshot was that the commissioners decided not to support Mr McCormick's notion or a motion of getting on to RTE and complaining about the Did you find out what uh, McCormick was referring to? Was it Bracken? No, I haven't. <laughs> I, I haven't a clue. Was it Bracken? I don't know. Um, I mean, it gave with a burn and the nip. I don't remember that. No. Unless he flicked on to Dynasty or something like that. Because in that time, I remember seeing hairy chested men on TV. Ah, but the difference between hairy chested men and men and women in the nude <laughs> copulating. <laughs> I'd love to have been at that, me- There's a difference. that meeting. Yeah. So and, that's McCormick. And uh, the paper, of course, just one word on local newspapers. Yeah. How valuable they are. You know, a lot of time, people, some people can be very high-minded about local newspapers. But, you know, in terms of historians like me, people looking back, researching, they yeah, are invaluable. They are, yeah. Absolutely. But what else do you have? They're invaluable. Mm, it's true. Even for the photographs of events that you can piece together. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, it's interesting that you say that now because the reporting of a certain event, McFadden, Go into that case because there was biased reporting or alleged biased reporting, wasn't there? So Uh, let's pop onto that one. I know we're we're going back and forth, but what we're trying to do today is get excerpts from your book um, so people can understand where you're coming from. So this is quite a big case, wasn't it? Basically, it was Father James McFadden. This is in 1889. 1889. So he's a canon, wasn't he? A canon, he was indeed. Yeah. And he was a great supporter of small farmers and tenant farmers up in Donegal. I think think the locality was Derry Beg. Yes. I I think it was. Yeah. And um, it happened that there was an altercation, a a row between local people and an RIC person. Yeah. And this man was killed. The RIC man was killed. A whole rake of local people were brought to court including the priest. Yeah. Now, for uh, it's interesting that the case was not held up in Donegal. So it was brought to Marlborough. That's why it's Leash. interesting yeah, to yeah. us. Yeah. So. It was brought down to Marlborough. And another reason, of course, for that was Marlborough, particularly in the 18th century and the early 19th century, Marlborough Courthouse yeah. had a very, very bad reputation. Mm. It was kind of very eager to convict. It was so bad, actually, back in the late 18th century, it was so biased that there'd be people on the jury and they'd be wearing orange emblems. You know, conservative Protestant yeah, orange. Yeah. So, that, that, so that's where the Denimay's Art Centre is now. Absolutely. Yeah. That's exactly it. Mm. And that's exactly where the courthouse is today. Yes. And I'm sure that I haven't been in the courthouse in God knows how many years, but I'm sure that the actual courtroom hasn't changed much. I wouldn't much. think so, no. Yeah. No. So, um, Looking back on it, it was pathetic, really, because a lot of the people who were being convicted only spoke Irish. And here they were being brought down 200 miles down the country into a very alien environment to them. Because remember, Port Leash was originally, and some people might like to accept this, was a planter town, was quite an anglified English town at one stage. That's why it was called Maryborough. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. 
getting back to the local paper again, you know, you had these poor guys who couldn't speak Irish, and then you had the local people referring to them as quaint and picturesque peasants. Right. So th there was a culture clash yes, there straight yes, yes. away. Yeah. So the upshot was that 10 of the, we won't call them peasants, of the tenant farmers were convicted of willful murder. Father McFadden was convicted or charged with obstructing the execution of a warrant, of a, an arrest warrant. He wasn't charged with murder and he, it never, there was never any charge against him of murder. Right. Incidentally, that, that whole trial caused consternation in the town. All there were riots outside. People went haywire and the, the militia, the police, had to be brought in to quell the, the uprising around the town. People came, it was reported on as far away as New Zealand. So um, that was Father McFadden, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but just one thing I did want to mention, mm. Anne-Marie, the, the very first chapter in the book is called Home Thoughts from Abroad. Okay. And about two years ago, I put advertisements up on social media aimed at people who had left the town or living abroad or living anywhere but out of the town. And could you name one item that reminds you most of home? Mm -hmm. A kind of, a, what's the word I'm looking for? A kind of a cherished symbol, if you yeah, like, yeah. of home. And I got a great response. So man, I, I got a brilliant response. But the surprising thing was, I thought that the big port leash symbol, if you were abroad, would be a statue in the market square. Mm. Now, and then, no one mentioned that. Someone the said, train uh, station, I suppose. The be. train station was straight away. Yeah. It's the first one. Because of the huge wall. You know, I suppose that it's, it's very iconic wall. in the town. Yeah, yeah, and someone else mentioned the Rocket Dunham Mace, that when they're coming, driving back from Dublin, when they see the Rocket Dunham Mace, they know they're home. Yeah, yeah. Uh, someone else mentioned... Uh, of course, the prison. <laughs> the prison, of course. Someone mentioned the road out of the town to Clenad. <laughs> and a place that cropped up twice... No, three times actually, was Paddy O'Sullivan's ice cream parlour ah. in Main Street. Now, now you I see, I'm not a Port Leash girl, so yeah. I, but I'm saying, ah, because isn't it brilliant? There's simple stuff like that. Well, that's, again, that kind of concurs, kind of fits in with my whole attitude to doing this, like yeah, ordinary things, ordinary yeah. people. Do you remember that shop? Was I do, indeed. I remember, it was where Miscellany is now. Ah, And yes. I'm delighted to say... Yes that uh, it's still in the ownership of one of the Sullivan descendants, the family, which is a lovely thing. You yes. know, we had miscellany shop there for years, mm. and now we have miscellany cakes, which Excellent. is the next uh, young lady, a lovely young lady, the next generation of the O'Sullivans. Uh -huh. And I remember it well. The big treat in our house was, if you were good, if you were very good, you were brought up to Sullivan's for a knickerbocker glory. <laughs> was there chewing gum in the middle of that? No. Not in Paddy Sullivan's, okay. no. <laughs> Maybe now, <laughs> certainly not in Paddy Sullivan's. It was just fruit and ice cream, pile upon pile oh, upon okay, pile. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. The, um, the Blue Bridge, did that uh, get mentioned? It did, for good <laughs> and better. You know, it's funny how when it was there, no one liked it. Yeah, and then it was gone. Uh, it was like, it was gone. where do we meet? It's funny, we, be, we become nostalgic straight away. <laughs> well, you know? of course, it wasn't used. That's why that was the whole comedy of it, wasn't it? That was it. I, I think I used it twice to take photographs from the top of mm. it, and that'll be it. Seems similar, yeah. yeah you you see, it's from a child's point of view, you see. That's the stuff. They're not going to remember the statues, you know, and the stuff that we think that with the Market Square. They're going to remember the symbols of being young. 
aren't they? Oh, I, I think the whole thing, you know, uh, everything I do anyway has to do with memory. Yeah. You know, and, you know, it does not mean that memories, they're often fallacious, they're often maybe totally wrong. But I don't think that's that, that important, to be honest with you. No, we love stories. I mean, this is all about telling stories, as, as, as my programme is as well. Absolutely. And finding out about old folklore and, I suppose, keeping it alive in this book and the books you've done before. You must have got that kind of response, though, from people when you do launch your books. Oh, my, well, you, know, you must get so many people coming up to you saying, John, I remember that thing you talked, you know, whatever it is. I have been so lucky, Anne-Marie, with the Portlaoise people have been brilliant to me. Absolutely, you know, people go on about, and I've always, I've often heard it said about Portlaoise is a very begrudging town and that, you know. Mm. But in my experience, it most certainly is not. not I have gotten nothing but 100% support from people. Yeah. Both in terms of people buying the book, attending the launch, and coming up to me afterwards and and see, thanking me for, oh God, I've forgotten about that. Well, it's meticulous, you see, and it's also very good quality, John. I mean, I think sometimes, I'm not trying to put down people who gather together local history books at all, but this particularly, you can pick this up in any part, as, as far as I'm concerned, of Ireland or the world, and they're just stories, they're people's stories. Uh, but it's the way you do it, you see. As I said to you at the start of this interview, you piece it together through the years, like the theme of the water starting with the cholera, it almost becomes a story in, in itself. Well, it, it does, and you're not consciously writing a story, maybe. Yeah. But be, because what I, the chronology kind yeah. of lends itself maybe to being a story. So this is the final part of your trilogy. The third and final part of the trilogy. But again, I'm quick to hasten to add, you never know. You never know what comes into your Three, head. 3.1. Three <laughs> I could be like Frank Sinatra's 300 farewell tour. Well, I'm sure there's plenty more where that came from. John Dunn, the brand new book is called The Maryborough Miracle. You'll find it, no doubt, in your local shop. If not, you can contact him through his website. It's portleashpictures.com. That's portleashpictures.com. And he has a page also on Facebook. Thank you, John. And thank you for listening.